0: fact, I would go so far as to say it's not an overstatement to affirm that Jesus' sovereignty and selecting this group of people, training them, transforming them, sending them out to be great preachers was just as much of a miracle as raising people from the dead and cleansing lepers. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church. Located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional, we endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. I want you to take your Bibles again as we return to our study of the Gospel of Mark, and turn with me again to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We have began a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves this morning at a pivotal text, verses 13 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. This morning we just want to look at verses 13 through 15, the title of the message, Coming and Going coming and going. But I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and I want to read the text in its entirety, beginning in verse 13, going through verse 19, because that will set in motion the context for us and help us understand the importance of this account. Mark 3, hear the Word of God, verse 13. It says, And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those "...whom He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom He gave the name Boenageres, that is, the sons of thunder." Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's Word. Please be seated. Let me pray and then we will dig into our text. Father, we come before your holy scriptures really undone, Lord, as we recognize all that Christ has become for us as sinners. All that we have sung about this morning, we are poor, needy sinners, humble citizens of your kingdom, recipients of grace, you are our King, we are those who are required to be submissive citizens to you, our King. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand how important it is to follow you, to understand discipleship, to understand your sovereignty in calling us, the obligation that we are under to serve you and honor you and to love you. We ask that you would help our frail hearts and minds to understand this text, to understand it not only mentally, but spiritually, in our hearts, not leaving this place just with heads full of knowledge, but hearts full of love and worship for Christ. Bless us, we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask with confidence and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you well know, Mark is a gospel of constant activity and movement. Mark's favorite word in this Gospel is the word immediately. He likes to use that word immediately, moving us rapidly from one scene to the next, really revealing to us the busyness of Jesus' life, a life that was constantly marked by coming and going. Jesus' steps were marked with purpose and with passion. Jesus' actions were marked with power and precision, precision in His teaching, Power in his miracles. His words were marked with urgency and mercy. He called sinners to repentance boldly, and then he mercifully laid his hands on those who needed healings. Every minute of every day was filled with service to his Father. And that would therefore make sense, knowing that he would soon depart this earth that He would, as we read in our passage this morning, commission a group of men who would become the nucleus of the New Testament church to carry on the mission of Jesus. For they themselves would become those who would be about the busyness of their Father. They would be about the business of their Father. The central verse of Mark is Mark 10.45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many giving His life a ransom for many, would result, as we have seen in a new Sabbath, that is what we call the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week, Sunday. It was from that first resurrection Sunday that the church, that is Christians, would begin living out their new week. The Christian Sabbath would not be the last day of the week as it was in the Old Covenant. The Christian Sabbath would be the first day of the week because this marked the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. This marked the, the era of a new age, a new epoch in which Jesus was ruling and reigning. That is one of the reasons why Jesus emphasized so much the hypocrisy of the religious observance of the Sabbath by the religious leaders. They observed the Sabbath wrongly, They observed it legalistically. They didn't view it with the view of the fact that Jesus was the ultimate and final Sabbath. They rejected Him. But the Christian's rest is in the finished work of Christ, isn't it? The Christian rests on the first day of the week, worships the Lord on the first day of the week, as a reminder of who is king in this world. Who is in control? Who has risen from the dead? And that serves as the impetus for the church militant poised and ready to go out into the world, to preach the gospel, to do kingdom work, to be constantly coming and going in service for Christ. Our lives are to be marked like Christ's, constantly coming and going. Well, the twelve apostles, as we call them, would serve as Christ's initial representative ambassadors On this earth, we read in Matthew 28 that before he ascended, he would commission them again to preach the gospel and to make disciples. But here in this chapter, chapter 3 of Mark, the 12 serve as really a reconstituted Israel. It is the apostles who, along with the Old Testament prophets, serve as the foundation of the church. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ being the cornerstone. And in this sense, these 12 apostles did not replace Israel since the Old Testament prophets of Israel played a vital role in establishing the church and announcing the coming of Christ the King. But these twelve apostles did fulfill God's long-promised prophecies concerning the inclusivity of Christ's kingdom, that His kingdom would encompass Jews and Gentiles. Paul put it this way in Galatians 3.7, "...know that those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. Jesus said, I have many more sheep that I must call into the fold, referring to the Gentiles. The point of all of this is to see that the church is the new Israel of God. The church is a new creation. The church is being built. It is a never-ending construction site in which... As the Gospel is preached, sinners are called to Christ sovereignly and God is building His church one stone at a time upon the foundation of the apostles of the New Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament. And in that process, He calls His people to come to Him and then go out into the world. This is what discipleship is. And discipleship is a major theme of the Gospel of Mark. That word disciple literally means a learner or a student. And up to this point, as, we looked at, as we've looked at the life of our Lord, He has called many disciples, but He's not called all of them yet. He's called people like Peter and Andrew, James and John, all of those fishermen, those brothers. He's called Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, the tax collector. But in this passage, He begins to call the others, and He begins to reveal who His inner circle is. He distinguishes who the apostles are. They are the men that will travel with Him and learn from Him for three years. They came to Him and He sends them out. They form the reconstituted Israel with Christ serving as the King, they as the royal ambassadors. And all of this is really rooted in a negative reality as well as a positive reality. Negatively speaking, this new Israel, this new creation, if you want to call it that, This reconstitution of a spiritual people who were true sons of Abraham, who had faith like Abraham in Christ, was a judgment upon Israel, a judgment on her because of her apostasy. The beginning of Christ's ministry, Jesus walked into the temple and cleansed it. The end of Christ's ministry, Jesus walked into the temple and cleansed it. He chased out the money changers, which signified the corruption, the legalism, The hypocrisy of the religious elite. We read Ezekiel 34 for our public reading of Scripture from the Old Testament, which speaks about the false shepherds of Israel. The Pharisees fulfilled that prophecy. They were the false shepherds. They were not true shepherds. They didn't feed the sheep, because when Christ came, they crucified Christ. They didn't feed the gospel to Israel. They were abusive shepherds. They scattered the sheep. They were selfish. Jesus said in Matthew 23, instead of producing converts to heaven, they produced sons of hell. He said in Mark 7, they exchanged the commandments of God for the traditions of man, placing them on the throne. And all of this was highlighted as we've seen in their misunderstanding and hypocritical observance of the Sabbath which Jesus gladly exposed. From top to bottom, Israel as a nation needed reconstituted and they needed new leaders because they were not sons of God, but they were, as Jesus said to their faces in John eight forty four, 44, you are sons of the devil. So negatively speaking, This reconstitution was a judgment. But positively speaking, this meant revival. This meant an evangelistic campaign such as which has never been seen in the history of the world. These twelve men represented the twelve tribes of the new Israel of God, the new creation. As the second Adam Jesus was not just forming a new nation, Jesus was forming an entirely new creation, lived out of a new Sabbath. This new creation would involve transformed hearts, not legalistic hearts, lives birthed anew in the kingdom of God on a mass scale. The foundation of this new creation would be built on the apostles, these men that Jesus chose to be the new leaders of Israel who would preach the Gospel and there would be an expansion and an extension of God's kingdom throughout the world such as which has never been seen in all of the Old Testament. This new Israel, this band of brothers of Jesus would be selected to establish Christ's kingdom to extend into the world. And that is why Their story is not really theirs, is it? It's really our story. It was the beginning of the greatest evangelistic campaign ever seen in the history of the world. It's still occurring today. We are living in that day. We come to Christ by sovereign grace. We go out into the world by divine commission as royal ambassadors for Christ who is reigning over all things. We faithfully preach the gospel. We faithfully live the gospel. And God sovereignly brings in all the other sheep into this reconstituted spiritual people of God. And what is at the heart of this choosing of the twelve? Well, what is at the heart of the choosing of the twelve is the same thing that is at the heart of God's choosing of you into His kingdom if you've been born again. And that is it has everything to do with the character of God. The building of His church has nothing to do with you or me except in the sense that God chooses to use us according to His own free sovereign grace And holy character. And so we find in verses 13 through 15, which are the verses we want to look in detail this morning, three reasons why Jesus chose the twelve. Now, next week, Lord willing, we will look at the twelve. Who were they? Who were these men? Sort of a strange group of men, to be honest. Who were they? But we want to answer this morning why did Jesus call them? Three reasons. Number one, to reveal His sovereignty. Number two, to reveal something about His intimacy. And number three, to reveal something about His authority. Those are our three points this morning. The first reason Jesus chose the twelve apostles was to reveal His sovereignty, His sovereignty to call. Discipleship, does not occur apart from the sovereign grace of God. Notice verse 13. It says, He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. Now, to this point, Jesus has already called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He's called Levi the tax collector. But here He's going to call the seven others, and He's going to crystallize the purpose for which He called them. But here in verse 13, the emphasis, what I want you to see is that Jesus chose them according to His sovereignty. Jesus called them according to His sovereignty, even as Jesus would say on another occasion, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. His choosing of the twelve reveals His sovereignty to call. And this sovereignty has a threefold facet to it. First, it involves sovereign intercession. Verse 13 says, He went up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain. Now, we don't know the exact location of this mountain, but it's called the mountain, which signifies the fact that everyone in Mark's day and Jesus' day would have known this mountain. It's a mountain that people went to, probably located in the vicinity of Capernaum. Most likely, according to tradition, on the westerly slopes um, along the lake or the Sea of Galilee, the Horns of Hayton as they call it. But what's important to see is not the location of this mountain, but the isolation of this mountain. In Luke's account of the calling of the twelve in Luke 6.12, Luke tells us that Jesus went up on that mountain not simply to select the twelve, but to spend all night in prayer to His Father. Mountains have great significance in the Bible. Moses received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Jesus would go to the Mountain of Olives. Jesus would go up on a mountain to pray after walking on the water. Jesus would be transfigured before the disciples on a mountain. Here Jesus is going... To do business with his father, to sovereignly intercede, to have communion with his father. And we learn something here regarding God's providence and prayer. Consider the fact that the Holy Son of God, the Creator of heaven and earth, the one who knew all things, the one who was sovereign over all things, still prayed to his father. He did this because he had sweet communion with his father. He had an innate desire to speak with His Father, to do His Father's will, and this same communion would be granted to His followers, those that He would choose. And so He's praying to the Father, help me choose out of this larger group of disciples who the inner circle will be. Now let me just say, I think that prayer is the most neglected discipline of the church. Here we see the humility of Jesus in interceding, Asking the Father who He should select. I quoted to you earlier the first part of John 15.6, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. But the end of that verse says, John 15.16, And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give to you. That's the way Jesus lived His life. Trusting the Father. Knowing the Father would answer His prayer requests. John Calvin said, In prayer... Two things are necessary, faith and humility. By faith we rise up to God, and by humility we lie prostrate on the ground. That was our humble Jesus. We aren't to use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to pray. Why? Because Jesus didn't, and He was sovereign over all things. And He's praying in this isolation of the cold mountain air for the Father to reveal to Him who He would choose So his sovereignty to call involved a sovereign intercession. But secondly, his sovereignty to call involved a sovereign initiative. Verse 13 goes on to say, not only did he go up on the mountain, and he he did that to pray, but after his praying was done, on the next day, notice verse 13, it says, and he called to him those whom he desired. After the sovereign intercession, Jesus took the sovereign initiative to pursue the elect ones. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. 1 John 4.19, We love because He first loved us. Jesus took the sovereign initiative to choose the twelve, just like He takes the sovereign initiative to choose any sinner to be part of His kingdom. We'll see next week what a motley crew this was. Former fishermen collector, a nationalistic zealot, even a betrayer, probably not the ones you would think God would choose. But let me just say, that's always how God operates. He chooses those who are least likely to to reveal His glory and His power and salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No boasting here. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's not an overstatement to affirm that Jesus' sovereignty in selecting this group of people, training them, transforming them, sending them out to be great preachers was just as much of a miracle as raising people from the dead and cleansing lepers. These men were walking miracles. Which is how the Bible describes what the Gospel does to a human soul. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away, behold, new things have come. If you have been brought to Christ, it is not your own doing. You had nothing to do with your physical birth. You weren't there when your parents chose to have you. To say it in G-rated language. You weren't there. God's choosing of you into His kingdom is all according to His divine initiative. We are newborn babes in Christ trained by Him to walk the way He walks. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How can the Bible say that? The Bible can say that because the power to walk that way isn't in you. It's the sovereign initiative of God to rebirth us into the kingdom, to train us up as new babes through the power of the Holy Spirit, beginning with regeneration and continuing with sanctification. And I should hasten to say that Luke 6.13, in his account of this, Luke points out that there were many of his disciples called on that mountain that day. So you're, you're talking about a large group of people that have been following Jesus. He only selected some. Among them were certainly the likes of those who deserted Him in John 6.66 where it says many of His disciples withdrew and were not walking with Him anymore. Even among the twelve that Jesus selected, there would be Judas Iscariot. There were always apostates in the church. Those who walk away from the church because they never were really part of the church. To borrow the Apostle John's language, they never were really with us. They follow their sin, their agenda, their passions. They leave Jesus. They don't walk like Jesus because they can't walk like Jesus because they never possessed Jesus. They may have professed Him. They may have outwardly followed Him, but they weren't new creations. They weren't transformed. They were still in the old Adam. Their desires were earthly, not heavenly. They were marked by sin, not a Savior. Jesus never possessed them. Because Jesus said in John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. When we read here that Jesus called to him, verse 13, those who he desired, we need to think in terms of what is true not merely about the twelve, but everyone who is part of the invisible church. So that what happens here with the calling of the twelve is what we could call a microcosm of how people are called into the kingdom of God at large even today. So the word church, for example, the Greek word ekklesia, it's built off two Greek words, prefix ek, which means out of, and the word kaleo, which means to call, to call out of. The church is the ekklesia, those who are the called out ones, those who have been inwardly drawn by the Holy Spirit. The invisible church are the true elect of God who hear the shepherd's voice, who become new creations, who are transformed, trained, equipped, sent, they follow. They don't desert Christ. It's all according to the power of God. It's all rooted in God's divine initiative. It is, He called to Him those whom He desired, and not one of those will be lost. Something interesting about discipleship in Jesus' day was the fact That rabbis did not recruit their students. So, if you wanted to train under a rabbi, you had to apply. Just like you would apply in the admissions office of a university. Not here. Jesus recruited who he wanted. That's a very important point. Jesus chooses who will be in his kingdom, he doesn't have to save anybody. But if anybody is saved, he chooses who it will be. And he takes the divine initiative. Because if he doesn't take the divine initiative, you won't. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way. There is none who seek God. No, not one. We are all in rebellion. We are all running away. We have all rejected God. We don't want to have anything to do with Him. But according to His free and sovereign grace, just as He did on this mountain, He will come into the lives of those He has chosen and He will draw them to Himself. They will be transformed. They will be forgiven. And they will follow Him. They will not desert Him. And here it is, a divine initiative. Pursuing those men that would be the foundation of the church. Jesus' sovereignty and calling is not only marked by a sovereign intercession and a sovereign initiative, but notice the end of verse thirteen, a sovereign irresistibility. The end of verse thirteen it says that he called those he sovereignly wanted, and notice the simple language. It says, and they came to him. They came to him. They only came to him because of God's irresistible grace. The Bible shows very strong language in terms of metaphors to describe sinners apart from Christ. Those apart from Christ, the Bible says, are in slavery. Those apart from Christ are dead. They're marked by deadness, blindness, ignorance. No one can come to Christ apart from the effectual call No one will come apart from the divine initiative. Those whom Jesus desires, those are the ones that come. No one will come without that divine initiative because we're bound in sin. We're slaves to sin, slaves to Satan. We're blind. Jesus told Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We're dead, Ephesians 2.1, and sins and trespasses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, not only are we marked by slavery, deadness, blindness, but we're also marked by ignorance, not able to understand. We're spiritually discerned. We can't understand the things of the Spirit. But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Many are called, few are chosen. And the Bible underscores several characteristics of God's irresistible grace, of His effectual call of the elect. First of all, God's effectual call is immutable. Romans 11.29 says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That means God will never turn back on His Word. His promise to save His elect is Immutable, His calling of His elect is so certain, it's irrevocable. That's the language the Bible uses to describe it. God is immutable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Effectual calling is also marked by the element of eternality. 2 Timothy 1 God's eternal purpose to save those he wills was given in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. The effectual call of God unto the elect is immutable. It is eternal. It was chosen in eternity past. It's infallible. Proverbs 19:21 says many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And Paul says in Romans 9, who can resist God's will? Nobody. God's effectual call is immutable, it is eternal, it is infallible, and it is also unconditional. God could choose to send everyone to hell, but we read in Ephesians 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to save. It's so simple. He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him but it's only simple because god does it salvation would never be accomplished by man it's according to god's sovereign grace paul said in romans 9:15 for he says to moses i'll have mercy on whom i have mercy i'll have compassion on whom i have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who has mercy this is the king who's establishing his kingdom he's calling to himself who he wants by divine initiative Sovereign intercession, sovereign initiative, and now we see the sovereign irresistibility. It is man's default to think that he can do something to gain heaven. This past Tuesday morning, I received a phone call from someone I did not know. This happens whenever your cell phone's published on the website, you get a lot of strange calls. I was happy to help this man, he told me he was a truck driver, he was on the road, and He said, I know you're a preacher and a theologian, and I've got a question I want to ask you. And I knew immediately that it was a setup. I could tell from the beginning of the conversation, but decided I would play the game with him. And so he began to ask me, well, you know, when I read the book of James, it appears that what the Bible says is that we're not merely justified by our faith, but we're also justified by our works. And therefore, we are saved by our faith and by our works, to which I... Gently but very firmly told him that he was misinterpreting Scripture and that's not what the Bible says and that's a contradiction of the gospel and went through a whole litany of various passages of Scripture, um, none of which convinced him of anything that I was saying. And I said, Let me just stop you a second. Why did you call me? And he said, Well, because I, I respect your opinion and, and I want to know what you have to say. And I said, well, what I have to say is what God's Word has to say. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with God. And he said, well, I just want to let you know that the whole reason I called you to begin with was to test you, and now I see that you're a good Calvinist. I said, well, you called to test me. He said, yeah, I called to test you, just like God tested Abraham. And I said, well, you're not God. Well, he hung up. That was the end of the conversation. But the problem of that man is the problem of all sinners, isn't it? What does Jesus say? He says, you did not choose me. I chose you. How hard is that to understand? Why do I want to try to take credit for anything in my salvation? Can't do that. It's all according to God's sovereign grace. So why did Jesus call the twelve? Well, number one... And most prominently, I think He called the twelve to reveal to us His sovereignty to call. His sovereignty to call. And if you are going to be born again this morning, it must be something God does. If you are to be allowed into the kingdom of heaven, God must open the door and pull you in. You are not coming to the door on your own. You must feel the weight of your sin. You must be convicted of your sin. And you must lie prostrate before the Holy King, begging for His mercy and His grace. And if you reach that point, you've already revealed the fact that He's called you. He'll pull you in. Not what we do. Jesus chose the twelve to reveal His sovereignty to call. Secondly, Jesus chose the twelve to reveal His intimacy to commune. His intimacy to commune. Notice the beginning of verse 14. I think it possibly could be missed if we weren't careful. It says, And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, and here's what I want you to see, so that they might be with Him. We'll stop right there. That's very interesting to me. Why did He choose them? Well, He chose them according to verse 14, simply that they might be with Him. I can't help but think of the believer's union and communion with Christ. Twelve were called to be with Him. This is powerful. What happens when you're with Jesus? Well, we read in Acts 4, "...now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And Luke says later in Acts, the whole world was turned upside down just because they were with Him. God's grace and sovereign salvation is so wonderful because listen to this, beloved. He not only saves us from something, He saves us to something. He saves us to be with Him He saves us to be with Himself. The intimacy to commune. To me, that that is extraordinarily powerful. Because Jesus is going to use these apostles, right? They're the foundation of the New Testament church. But verse 14 doesn't say that's the reason He chose them, He chose them so that they might be with Him. That is the glory of the gospel that a holy God would want to have anything to do with poor, needy sinners. That's the heart of God. The intimacy of communion to save us not only from our sin, to save us not only from hell, to save us not only from the power of the devil, but to save us for Himself. The glory of the Gospel. My wife and kids, can testify to you that if I walk to any soccer field, I am constantly looking for talent. Recruiting kids. What can this kid bring to a table? And oftentimes I'll recruit kids that will never even be placed on any team I coach, but I just want to help out another team and sometimes another coach might recruit kids from me and put them on my team and that's just the way that it works. But I will tell you There's a big difference between recruiting a player for yourself, where you train them, you create a bond with them, you see their progress, and recruiting a player that you'll never see again and have nothing to do with. To borrow that analogy, Jesus chose His people, us, for Himself, not for another. And there are intimate bonds that tie us to Christ that can never be severed. And by the way, when He recruited us, there was nothing within us that He saw that was compelling. It was all according to His free grace. But I want you to note there in verse 14 that Greek word translated appointed. Back up. He saved them that they might be with Him, but The beginning of verse 14, he appointed 12. That is an interesting Greek word. I think it gives some insight to crystallize the thinking that is behind this. As I said, this is a microcosm of what happens broadly when God calls people into his kingdom. So we're not to be so isolated in our thinking that whatever Jesus does on this mountain, he just did with the 12. No, what he did on the mountain with the 12 is essentially what he does in calling any sinner into his kingdom. And that word appointed is the Greek word poiao. It literally means to make something, to create something. It means to produce, to form, to fashion. And in fact, I'm sure none of you have a Greek Septuagint with you this morning, unless it's on an app. But in the Greek Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, poieo, this word used as appointed, is the same word used in Genesis 1. -1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When Jesus chose the twelve, He was creating a new creation. This is not a natural thing. This was supernatural. He was regenerating His disciples. He was transforming them. They would bear His image. They would become new creations. They would be inseparable from Him, placed in Him, one with Him. That's what Jesus prayed, right? That they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You. That they also may be in Us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. Just as Jesus brought the world into existence, according to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him, and without anything, without Him was not anything made that was made. Just as Jesus brought the natural world into Creation, so too did He create the church. He recreated these men. Here's the lesson. Our spiritual union with Christ is such that discipleship, and this is an important point, does not so much consist in what we do for Christ, but what He did for us in remaking us. So in all the talk about serving the kingdom, serving Christ, making disciples... The power behind that is what God has done in and through us. The power is not in us. Here is a new creation. Here is a new Israel where God would reign supreme over His people, in His people, through His people. He appoints them. He creates the twelve. And notice verse 14 also says, whom He also named apostles. So this distinguishes this inner circle from the rest of the disciples, they're called apostles. They are the sent ones. They would go out into all the world. Jesus named them. Just like the first Adam named his, the creation of God the animals, here the second Adam is naming his chosen ones of this new spiritual creation to send them into the world. But before they would go out in the world, as verse 14 says, He called them that they might be with Him. That they might be with Him. Discipleship is about a relationship first. Apart from a relationship, discipleship is not real. We must realize who we are in Christ before we'll be motivated to do anything that He calls us to do. So what's the issue with the Pharisees? Their hearts weren't transformed. So they were on a legalistic treadmill of performance. They weren't true followers of God. The believer's union with Christ, being with Him, being in Him, that reality motivates holiness because without that union there is no power. Apart from us being placed in Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is no power to live godly. There is no discipleship. There is no following of Christ. There's no power. One powerful example of this took place in the life of the Philippian jailer. We read in Acts 16.31, the apostles told him, believe on, or the ESV says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That Greek word is ice. Believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we believe in Christ, we are placed into Him. Our faith makes us one with Him so that our union with Christ makes us one with the Father, bringing that sweet communion of fellowship not only with the Father, but with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus calls sinners out of the world. That they might be one with Him and the Father. Unbelievable. Overwhelming. And we need to make a distinction between union and communion. Your union with Christ can never be broken, but your communion can be disrupted. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, or if you respond to a trial with the wrong attitude, or you're not spending time in the Word and in prayer, but your union can never be severed. Jesus calls all disciples to Himself, as verse 14 says, so that they might be with Him. Salvation is about this intimacy to commune. God with His people. Sweet fellowship. Sweet communion. Sweet rest and security. There is no doctrine in all of the Bible that is sweeter than the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. That we were saved to be with Him. In Him. And He in us. What did Jesus say in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. You say, wait a second, I, I thought you are preparing many rooms, or as the King James says, many mansions. Yeah, but Jesus says... Those are for you, but when I come back for you, I'm taking you to myself. The glory of heaven is the communion uninhibited, free from sin, free from trials that we have with God through Christ. And we enjoy that sweet communion even on this earth. The disciples did, and it is that sweet union with Christ and communion that fuels our obedience to God. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world. Knowing that motivates you actually living out those good works because you know this has been certain from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. If you're a Christian, you were placed in Christ, chosen in Him, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. So, why did Jesus choose these 12? The exception of Judas, obviously. And why did Jesus choose anybody? Number one, to reveal his sovereignty to call, verse 13. Number two, to reveal his intimacy to commune, beginning of verse 14. And finally, number three, to reveal his authority to commission. His sovereignty, his intimacy, His authority. Notice the rest of verse 14 and all of verse 15. It says, He called them that they might be with Him, verse 14, and, here it is, that He might send them out to preach, and, verse 15, have authority to cast out demons. Now, here is His authoritative commission that He will repeat in Matthew 28. Before He ascends, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Here they're coming to Him, and here He's going to send them out. Jesus' life, as I said at the beginning of my sermon, was marked by coming and going. He wants the disciples' lives to be marked by coming and going, so that the life of a Christian is a life of service in the kingdom. Now here for the apostles, He sends them authoritatively he commissions them to preach, as verse 14 says, and as verse 15 says, to have authority to cast out demons. Those are the two tasks identified by Christ to the apostles. The primary activity is preaching. You remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' whole ministry was primarily marked by preaching, even more so than healing. So much so that He would avoid sometimes healing people. We read in chapter 1, verse In verse 38, let us go on to the next towns, Jesus says, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus was preaching and casting out demons. Those two things were joined together. Of course, we read in Romans 10, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will they hear without a preacher? We affirm that the preaching of the Word of God is the primary means of grace by which people are brought into the kingdom of God, by which the darkness of Christ's kingdom is peeled away, and the light of truth enlightens hearts. Later in Mark chapter 6, in verse 7 we read, They went out. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. These were the apostles, the apostolos. They would be sent out, as verse 14 says, apostello is the is the verb form of that, which literally means to commission. So this is the authoritative commission of Christ to the apostles. Commission to preach, commission and authority to cast out demons. And I just want to say, to be sure, the casting out of demons is not something that is a gift given to anybody but apostles. No one today has that gift. We read that the preaching of the apostles needed to be accompanied by signs and wonders. Hebrews tells us that salvation was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to by us, those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That would include the ability to cast out demons. Paul would even outline the signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. But here, none of the other gifts are mentioned. Mark doesn't mention speaking in tongues. Mark doesn't mention healing. Mark mentions preaching and then the authority to cast out demons. Why? Why is that? Well, to find out what Mark means, we're going to go look at what Matthew says. So take your Bibles and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 28. Mark mentions this in a different context, but here in verse 28 of Matthew, here is a principle. Very critical to see. Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and by extension my apostles, then you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why is there not demonic activity in the Old Testament? Why is there not demonic activity spoken about in any great length in the epistles? Because when Jesus walked this earth, He was establishing His kingdom. And all the powers of hell that could be marshaled against Christ were unleashed by Satan. And to prove that He was establishing His kingdom, and to prove that He had authority to raise people from the deadness of their sins and trespasses... He would preach the gospel, he would cast out demons, he would empower even his apostles to cast out demons to show that the hostility of hell could not defeat the kingdom of God. He would, as the Bible says in 1 John 3.8, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He came, to borrow the language of Paul in Colossians 1, to transfer out of the kingdom of darkness... His elect into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the twelve are aided in this endeavor to destroy the works of the devil as the Savior's soldiers. They are equipped to both exposit the word that is preached and to exercise the demons, that is, cast them out. All coming by the authority of the of Jesus, And what is the point of all of this? Well, simply this. Their preaching combined with the supernatural casting out of demons rescued souls from the kingdom of darkness and showed that a new era of redemption had dawned, a revival, a reconstitution of a new Israel, a new creation, an expansion of God's kingdom. Herman Baving, great Reformed theologian, said this, and I quote, After creation and the incarnation, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the third greatest work of God. Now, he wasn't saying by that that the the Holy Spirit didn't exist in the Old Testament and wasn't operative in the Old Testament. What he meant by that was the extension of Christ's authority as King, the expansion of His kingdom, the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God, and the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. Jesus said in the upper room, He would send the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Paraclete. Well, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Go read Jeremiah 31. Go read Ezekiel 36. The promise of the New Covenant is this this global and full blessing of the Spirit of God in a a massive way so that the Father sent the Spirit to come upon Jesus at His baptism and then the Son turns around at His ascension and pours the Spirit out at Pentecost. He baptizes this new Israel, this new creation, the New Testament church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. In this sense, the church, the New Testament church, is Pentecostal. And in that sense, I am Pentecostal. That denomination chose a biblical word to do unbiblical things. But I'm Pentecostal in the sense that I believe in the power of the Spirit operative today. As the great reformer Herman Bavinck said, the third greatest work of God after creation and incarnation is the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Fully, permanently, globally. Well, you say, what sort of application is that to us today? Well, it has a lot to do with your view of the world. Do you think there's two kings or one king? I mean, is Jesus halfway in charge of the world and Satan the other half? We're living in the last days. Let me correct People on that, the last days means the time period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. If you read Revelation chapter 20, you will find we are in that period in which Satan has been bound. It doesn't mean Satan isn't active, but God has put a leash on him and he can only go so far. We're living in the age of the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. Like never before, souls being saved on every continent and countries you've not even heard of. This is the age of the Spirit. This is the Pentecostal age. The church of the New Testament as Reformed writers refer to it. Reminds me of an experience I had when I was a little boy. I got off the bus one day, had some extra change in my pocket, so I bought me can of Coke, and I thought as I walked home, I would walk through, my bus stop was at a grocery store, and I thought it would be a good idea to walk through the owner's yard of that grocery store, had a big mansion, as a shortcut. Mm -hmm. I'm sipping on my Coke, walking through the yard, when all of a sudden I hear the rattling of chains, and I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't sound right. So I turn around, and from the corner of the house... About 30 yards were two Doberman pinchers coming at full speed toward me. Now, the Lord did not gift me with size, but He did gift me with speed. And I was never more grateful that day. The problem was my backpack was weighing me down. I dropped the Coke, I booked it, running so fast my feet weren't even touching the ground. And I remember thinking, if I can just reach the road, maybe... Maybe in God's providence, the dog will stop because it's the end of the property. Well, when I got to the end of that yard, I was about passed out. And I turned around and they had stopped just barking at me, barking at me. Well, I was grateful for God's providence that day. I'm also grateful for God's providence today. Satan is active. If you pass through his yard, he can hurt you but he can only go so far. This world is not falling apart. Christ is in control. And as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Satan is bound. He's bound in the sense that his powers have been stripped. The Spirit has been poured out. He has spoiled principalities and powers, to borrow the language of Colossians 2.15. He has disarmed them. He has destroyed the power of death. And what Jesus began with the apostles in them coming to Him and then going out into the world, that's what He's doing with the church today. Saving people from every language, tribe, nationality, calling them to Himself. That is what is so beautiful about planting a church. You see how God has saved different people. Now look across this room this morning and we do not all come from the same place. It's obvious by the way we look. We do not all have the same background. That is obvious. But the one thing that binds us together is the blood of Jesus Christ. That places us in union with Christ. We have the same calling. We have the same Christ. We have the same Savior. And it shows the massive power of God, the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, literally to change the world for Christ's glory. And one of the sad realities is that many Christians think, well, if I'm not called to full-time ministry, then God can't use me. Well, that is so wrong. God calls and equips us with different gifts to serve where and when we can in His kingdom. We're not all sent out to preach the gospel in the same way, but we are called to be a witness, right? We are called, let me return to that verse I began with, John 15, 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give it to you. We are called to bear fruit, are we not? The fruit of the praise of our lips, the fruit of righteous behavior, the fruit of witnessing to reap a harvest. God chooses a people for Himself not because they're the loveliest, not because they're the brightest, not because they are the best. He often chooses what is foolish to shame the wise, to reveal His power, to reveal His glory, to reveal that His kingdom is here, to reveal that Christ cannot be stopped. He will win in the end. He has been risen from the grave. Satan is bound. So that when we look at these apostles next week, We know that if God could use those men, He can use anybody. Because it's not about us, is it? It's about His kingdom, it's about His glory, it's about His power. It's about His gospel to save, to sanctify. And to bring His kingdom to this earth in such a way that we will marvel and worship Him for all of eternity and never get sick and tired of doing it. This is the God that we serve. Let us pray. Our Lord, we thank you for such a powerful text, Lord, because of these truths that are found embedded within these verses. The calling of the Twelve was not the end of your calling of disciples, it was the beginning. the New Testament church age, Lord, the beginning of the reconstituted Israel, the new Israel, the new creation, where King Jesus rules, He will subject all things to Himself. He will reconcile this world to Himself. Lord, that's where our hope lies. Lord, we pray that as we partake of this Holy Supper, that you would help us to reflect upon that and think upon that. We know that we wouldn't be here if it weren't for Christ. We would not be here were it not for his death, burial, and resurrection. So we come to celebrate his death and his life by partaking of these elements. We pray you would bless our time of sweet communion with him as we seek to obey you in observing the Lord's table. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name.